This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello, and welcome to episode two of our Smarter Lawcast series on being ESGWise. My name is Meg Lee, and I'm co-lead of Hall & Wilcox's Environmental, Social and Governance Industry Group. In this season, we're discussing the latest trends in ESG and how to ensure you are being ESG wise. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land from which I'm speaking today. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people joining us. Well, today I'm joined by my fellow partners, Anne McNamara, Adrian Verdnick and Julian Hammond to discuss the topic of greenwashing. This is a topic that is particularly relevant for, for financial services funds and firms, but also any corporates who are setting net zero targets or publishing ESG reports and making claims in those reports. Responsible investing is rising in prominence, especially with the increased awareness and impact of ESG factors. There is an onus on financial services firms and directors to understand the important investment considerations when incorporating ESG into their activities. At the same time, they must mitigate the risk of allegations of greenwashing, which can lead to enforcement action and increasingly litigation by third parties. But what does it mean in practice? So first, let's start with defining greenwashing, or I've also heard the phrase green wishing coined in the context of setting net zero targets. Adrian, can you explain to us what is greenwashing and is there a law against it? Good morning, Meg. Uh, thank you. And yes, as you've noticed, there is increased interest in the community in responsible investing products and services. And so greenwashing as defined by the corporate regulator, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, is the practice of misrepresenting the extent to which a financial product or investment strategy is environmentally friendly, sustainable or ethical. And so from the regulator's perspective, Greenwashing distorts the extent to which a current or a prospective investor might have information about a product that overstates the extent to which it's environmentally friendly or the extent to which it adopts ethical, social and governance considerations in the investment process or decision making. And so in some respects, Greenwashing is really the application of existing consumer laws around misleading and deceptive conduct and so on to an emerging area and an evolving space, which is the interest in green investment. And the regulators acknowledge that this is an evolving space and there have been significant developments in relation to disclosure standards around sustainability and sustainable related products. But to my mind, it really is the application of existing concepts around misleading and deceptive conduct and there are prohibitions against engaging in misleading and deceptive conduct under Australian consumer laws or for financial services licensees under the Corporations Act or um, the ASIC Act and the application of those laws to this evolving area of green investment and again they're established principles around making sure that products are true to label that the extent to which uh, claims are made about a particular product, they are not overstated, that there is a reasonable basis for making the claims and um, the claims made about a product are independently verifiable. So 
some of it is about the application of these concepts, existing concepts around misleading and deceptive conduct to voluntary disclosures mm -hmm. and marketing of products. But there are some provisions in the Corporations Act which require financial services licensees to make mandatory disclosures around the extent to which they take environmental, social and ethical considerations into account when designing and issuing their products. And so greenwashing is really about the application of laws to those provisions of the Corporations Act. And again, one of the key concepts here is about what does it mean to be environmentally sustainable or ethical uh, or to take social considerations into account when designing or uh, distributing a product. And so there's a lot of work being done around those concepts, what it means to be environmentally sustainable. And Australia is now starting to pick up on some of this taxonomy that has been put together and adopted in the European Union as to what it means to be environmentally sustainable. So it really is just an application of existing law concepts to an evolving area of investment. Thanks, Adrian. That's really comprehensive. And we might turn to you now. In the context of super funds, are there specific risks that need to be managed or compliance issues in relation to disclosing the ESG credentials of super funds? Um, thanks, Meg. And hello, Adrian and Julian. I think it's pretty clear that trustees of super funds are facing increasing pressure from their members and from the community to address ESG-related issues and to be seen to be addressing that. Which is the Prudential Regulator for Super Funds um, published a Prudential Practice Guide in November last year on climate change financial risks. And it identified three main heads of climate risk, physical risk, resulting in direct damage to assets or property, lower asset values, increased insurance claims and so on. Um, transition risk resulting in economic adjustments with impacts such as change pricing for goods and services, stranded assets, loan defaults and factors like that, and liability risk, factors such as stakeholder litigation and regulatory enforcement action. And APRA made it really clear in its practice guide that super trustee boards must add climate risk management to its oversight duties. So a prudent trustee, according to APRA, needs to document their oversight activities in their risk management policies, seek relevant information from management and in, you know, in their board reports and so on, undertake scenario analysis and stress testing um, as for other risks. It is clear that although APRA sets out a risk-based approach for super trustees that each trustee is intended to customise for its own purposes, environmental factors need to be considered as part of the overall risk management process undertaken by the trustee. The other side of the coin is that a failure to do so may constitute a breach of trustee duties. Now, with respect to social and governance risks, APRA hasn't specifically addressed mm. them since 2019. In 2019, they published an information paper which explained APRA's approach to supervision of governance culture, remuneration and accountability practices. I, the silence from APRA for the last few years is cold comfort for trustees. I think a failure to identify risks 
to a super fund's social licence to understand the risks that might arise from poor organisational governance culture and so on, and the failure to mitigate those kinds of risks can undermine financial and operational resilience and impose direct financial costs on super funds. So clearly, super funds need super fund trustees need to oversee these risks too in the context of their management and operation of the super fund in the best financial interests of their beneficiaries. Thanks, Anne. That's really helpful. Julian, we might turn to you now. How widespread is greenwashing in the courts and are there some prominent examples you can talk us through? Yeah, thanks, Meg. Um, and thanks to Anne and Adrian as well for their comments. Look, this is the uh, multi-million dollar question, isn't it? As Adrian said in his introduction, greenwashing really isn't a new source of legal or reputational risk for businesses, but really what it is now becoming is an acute source of legal risk for corporations, financial institutions with the increased level of focus. And um, the extent to which we can assess how widespread greenwashing is will likely come in the future as we now have a very laser-like focus from our regulators, in particular ASIC has released some uh, guidance as to its enforcement and surveillance of, of this going forward. Uh, but certainly I think there is significant reputational risk that exists for, for corporations and financial institutions in respect of, uh, as Adrian said earlier, misrepresentations made in annual reports or market filings, which might fall foul of those uh, misleading disclosure provisions in Part 7 of the Corporations Act or Part 2D of the ASIC Act. And again, also in relation to representations made in trade or commerce that might contravene those general prohibitions on conduct that is misleading or deceptive or likely to mislead or deceive under Section 18 of the Australian Consumer Law or those specific prohibitions against misrepresentations in the supply of goods or services under Part 3.1 of the Australian Consumer Law as well. So really, as Adrian said, this isn't a new source of legal or reputational risk, but the the increased focus of the regulator and increased focus of consumers in this space too will likely mean that the assessment of how widespread that is, it will certainly be coming. But there are some really prominent examples at the moment in the court and certainly historically in Australia as well um, in relation to enforcement action taken by consumers and also by regulators in relation to greenwashing. So one of the most prominent examples is uh, in August 2021, the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility filed a federal court claim against Santos, alleging that Santos engaged in greenwashing by embellishing its environmental credentials in a way that is misleading or deceptive or likely to mislead or deceive, uh, that being contrary to the Corporations Act and the Australian Consumer Law in reference to statements published in its 2020 annual report, which actually was published in 2021, in February 2021. And that, that claim, it alleges in part that Santos misrepresented that it had a clear and credible plan to meet its emissions targets, it's specifically in relation to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040. And the Australian Centre for Corporate Response Responsibility alleges that Santos's annual report conveyed a misleading impression that it had identified a series of steps based on reasonable assumptions that were sufficient to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040 and that it intended to implement those steps. It alleges that those misrepresentations occurred both by representation and omission. And so those representations really deal with the idea that Santos had a clear and credible transition roadmap in relation to that. And uh, in relation to this particular action, uh, the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility is seeking declarations of contravention, public corrective statements and injunctions to prevent the recurrence of the alleged breach. And in addition to that particular action that's being brought by the ACCR, um, there has been a little sequel from an activist group called Market Forces, 
which at the start of August 2022, lodged a complaint with ASIC in relation to uh, potentially misleading statements made by Santos Chairman Keith Spence and Managing Director Kevin Gallagher in relation to Santos's expansion plans at the annual shareholder meeting in May 2022. So the statements that were made here um, were really in response to questions by one of Market Forces campaigners over how Santos's plans for new oil and gas projects complied with the International Energy Agency's net zero emissions by 2050 recommendations. So there's recommendations there that, that, but from the IEA in relation to the, the fact that uh, there shouldn't be any new oil or gas projects. And statements were allegedly made by Santos uh, that could have misled investors as to the fact that these particular projects were being incorporated into the IEA plans already. And they said outside that statement, um, sub subsequent to the actual annual general meeting, there was a statement put on Santos's website that was a clarification after the AGM. And it said that the IEA had also noted that actual deployment of low emissions fuels was well off track to reach net zero and that their world energy outlook said spending on oil and gas was one of the few areas that is reasonably well aligned with the levels in net zero reporting. But market forces have said, well, this really misled um, investors as to what was said about whether it was part of the IEA's assessment as to net zero or not. And they've made a complaint with ASIC and we'll see where that lands as well. So there's certainly some more interesting developments to run in relation to that as well. Thanks so much, Julian. That's really interesting, the Santos case. Are there some other cases um, that demonstrate what else is going on in this in this space of greenwashing litigation? So look, I think in the courts there've really been there has been this kind of evolution of cases. A lot of the cases in the first in the first wave really of uh, of litigation in this space really dealt with potential negligence or nuisance claims, and now we're really looking at this focus on on greenwashing type claims. And there's really claims such as this uh, the ACCR and Santos case, which really looks at a specific allegation that might contravene misleading deceptive conduct. Uh, but there's also an adjunct to this, which is really looking at potential obtaining documents that relate to disclosures made in relation to um, emissions reductions targets or really the consistency of, of projects and projects finance stated under ESG policies. And one of the key cases in this area at the moment is Abrams and the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, where um, there has been an application filed by shareholder activists in relation to a books and records claims against the CBA. And really what that's seeking is production of documents created by CBA in analysing the consistency of new coal, oil and gas and related project finance under stated ESG policies. So in that ESG policy, the ESG framework released by CBA in 2019 included the following commitment. We ensure our business lending policies support the responsible transition to a net zero emissions economy by 2050 by only providing banking and finance actions for projects if supported by an assessment of the environmental, social and economic impacts of such activity and if in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So the Abrams case really is looking for documents in the context of that policy, um, including internal documents created for the purposes of carrying out an assessment of the environmental, social and economic impacts of those projects, um, carrying out assess an assessment of whether those projects are in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement and discharging any obligation or responsibility that any CBA unit, division or employee has under C 
CBA's internal environmental and social policy and also seeks documents that record consideration of the adoption of CBA's 2021 climate commitments um, and obviously aligning that with the Paris Aligned commitment to provide project financing only to projects that were in line with those goals. So that's another uh, approach which has been taken in relation to greenwashing, which is really trying to test the veracity of these statements and make sure that there's reasonable grounds to have made them. So that's, a, I guess, a, an adjunct to that and a preliminary step potentially to, to further actions in that space is to really use that books and records claim under Section 247A of the Corporations Act to test those assurances before you get into a courtroom, in part probably to discharge that, um, that requirement to have a reasonable basis uh, for any allegations made. So that's a really interesting development in this space. It's not new in some in, in, in some senses. There have been cases like this in the past, but really this kind of, you know, this books and records style claim is really going to be an area where we expect there will be some real developments. Um, now, obviously, an order can only be made by the court if the court is satisfied that the applicant is acting in good faith and that the inspection is being made for a proper purpose. But, uh, you know, I think it really illustrates the potential for shareholder remedies to be utilised to obtain information on whether companies are actually implementing their stated policies on climate change. And it represents a really interesting development in this space as well. Now, and obviously, you know, we've talked about the fact that, the, as Adrian said at the start, really, that this isn't a new area of the law, it's just got a new focus. And the ACCC, as always, has been very active in that space. And indeed, looking back even as far as 2007, 2008, took action against Holden in respect of various disclosures made uh, in relation to the Saab motor vehicle, where every Saab is green with carbon emissions neutral across the entire Saab range, with various statements made by, by GM Holden in relation to the Saab motor vehicles, and also stated that Saab will plant 17 native trees on your behalf in the first year as a carbon offset after you purchase that vehicle. And um, the ACCC took action in 2007-2008 in respect of those claims and undertakings were provided by GM Holden in respect to, of the fact that those advertisements were misleading and deceptive in relation to the carbon dioxide emissions of, of the Saab vehicles and various statements like that. So there's also that lots of activity um, from the ACCC in this space, and we certainly expect to see a, a significant development and increase in activity in this space going forward as well. That's great, Julian. What a great overview of the different types of cases that are being brought. And I agree with you that I think the Abrams style of case is just going to become more prominent as many companies seek to set their net zero targets. Perhaps back to Anne, in terms of the regulators, you mentioned obviously APRA and some of the guidance that's been put out. ASIC and the ACCC have been busy as well. Are you able to sort of give us an overview of what's been released and, and how useful that guidance is to companies? Sure, Meg. Look, I think most recently it's ASIC who's been active. So in June this year, 2022, ASIC published its information sheet on how to avoid greenwashing. And it's intended to provide guidance to super trustees and other entities that take sustainability-related considerations into account. And the information sheet actually does contain some useful tips on what to do and what not to do. And it, it was quite interesting hearing the, Julian's discussion of the Santos case because, because in a way I think the, the information sheet sort of summarises some of the outcomes from that decision. So just looking at the information sheet, the I, I think a big emphasis is that a headline claim should not be misleading and qualifications can't be used to, to rectify misleading or deceptive claims. 
products have to be true to label and a discloser shouldn't use jargon or vague terminology in actually disclosing their products. Disclosures have to enable investors to fully understand the product sustainability related investment screening criteria. And there's, there are examples given again in the information sheet. For example, stating that a product takes into account sustainability factors without saying how is seen to be inadequate. It's unlikely to help investors because investors can't understand the product sustainability related investment strategy. It should also be clear whether the particular investment screen applies only to certain product offerings or to the issuer as a whole. And to avoid breaching the misleading statement prohibitions, trustees should clearly explain what their sustainability target is, how and when they expect to meet their target, how they'll measure progress towards that target and any assumptions that they've relied on when setting the target or when measuring their progress. If trustees have adopted a stewardship approach with respect to achieving their sustainability-related targets, they should explain to their investors the rationale for engaging with particular companies to influence changes in their corporate behaviour and provide regular updates on their progress with those companies, including stewardship activities and outcomes, such as voting and other engagement activities. Thanks, Anne. That's helpful. Adrian, we might turn back to you now. Um, how does the approach Australia's taking and Australian regulators compare to what's happening in Europe or, or the USA? So the Australian regulators are adopting quite a similar approach to regulators in other jurisdictions, such as the UK, in Canada, in Singapore, and that is really leveraging off existing regulation around misleading and deceptive conduct. And largely they are issuing or developing codes of practice that sit around that existing legislation, which really define the things that issuers and participants should do to avoid greenwashing. And again, they are relatively common concepts around being true to label, having a reasonable basis for making various assumptions, uh, trying to disclose and explain the extent to which certain claims are made and considered to be accurate by issuers. And so there is a piece of work being done really around the world to update existing concepts of what is environmentally sustainable and so on. A lot of that is being based around the European Union's taxonomy project, which is moving towards mandatory disclosure for companies around the extent to which they are environmentally sustainable. And so this really works in with the Paris initiative and the move towards net zero. And of course, in order to be able to determine whether governments, companies and others are moving towards net zero, there needs to be some understanding of what environmentally sustainable initiatives are. And the EU taxonomy project, which has come online, or it's at least the first stage has come online this year, requires mandatory disclosure of certain uh, environmentally sustainable approaches being taken by companies. And it's really an independent method of assessment for companies in determining whether they are investing, operating and so on in an environmentally sustainable way. So that's a form of agreed principles and agreed 
terminology that is being adopted in the European Union is likely to be adopted by other countries as well. The other main development is an agreed standard in terms of climate-related disclosures and the widely adopted um, set of principles and disclosures is now that of the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures or the TCFD. And in its guidance, which Anne referred to, APRA in its CPG 229 Climate Change Financial Risks document has suggested that regulated entities draw on the structure of the TCFD recommendations by outlining governance, risk management, scenario analysis and disclosures. And ASIC in its info sheet that Anne referred to also encourages fund managers to voluntarily disclose under the TCFD framework. So the task force on climate related disclosures is becoming the industry standard in terms of disclosures around environmentally related issues. And there are 11 TCFD recommended disclosures around issues of governance, strategy, risk management and metrics and targets that companies are encouraged to assess their operations against and disclose against. And interestingly, in its recent guidance note, the Financial Services Council has set out uh, ways in which fund managers and superannuation trustees can also approach disclosure against ESG-related uh, topics. And they too are suggesting that the TCFD recommended disclosures are the industry standard, and they have put out a comprehensive set of principles for issuers and other asset managers as to how they could disclose against the TCFD disclosures. So for me, it's a, an important development that we now have an industry standard by which all participants can assess their operations and disclose. And it's likely that the TCFD disclosure principles will become mandatory. Uh, they are becoming mandatory in jurisdictions such as the UK and New Zealand. And I expect that Australia will soon follow by adopting them as a mandatory set of disclosures as well. That's great. Thank you. So companies do need to keep an eye on what's going on overseas as, as those trends do tend to filter through into Australia. So Julie, we might end with you also looking at that international perspective in terms of what cases have been run in the EU or the USA that might give an eye to what's next in Australia. Yes, in this evolving space where uh, litigation and enforcement will only increase, I think this will be three key areas I'd like to speak with everyone about. And now in their first case, I'm definitely going to utilise an incredibly poor French accent to describe um, or, or uh, set out the, the parties here. So I'm really happy to get any feedback from uh, from Meg, from Anne, from Adrian about the, the terrible nature of my pronunciation here. But there has been a case in a Dutch court, a Milieu Defence and Royal Dutch Shell, um, so again, let, let, please tell me if that's terrible pronunciation, but that was a case in May 2021 in which a Dutch court found that Shell's failure to reduce emissions on a trajectory consistent with the Paris Agreement was a breach of its duty of care to and the human rights of Dutch citizens, which is an extraordinary decision in lots of ways. The court ordered uh, Royal Dutch Shell to increase its emissions reduction policy to 45% by 2030 across all areas of the business, really consistent with a 2019 um, baseline, and was 
critical uh, of Shell's emissions reductions policy uh, and indeed found that actually it was not concrete, has many caveats and is based on monitoring social developments rather than the company's own responsibility for achieving a CO2 reduction. There has been an appeal against that decision, but really it's a really interesting decision and a suggestion as to really how things might evolve. Now, we talked about earlier the idea that in this kind of wave of cases, there has been attempts to, to find, you know, uh, I guess, duty of care in relation to various cases brought on grounds of of negligence and also nuisance. Um, but there hasn't really been any success in that space. But obviously, in this case, that, that's a really a critical example of the way in which, you know, the, that expectation of net zero targets might really uh, have that focus on, on a duty of care looking forward. Obviously, it's not a, a legally binding precedent on Australian companies, but it really suggests that there, there may be some development in that space. You know, it, it, it's in direct contrast, really, to New Zealand's decision in Smith and Fonterra Cooperative, which in which the New Zealand Supreme Court rejected the existence of a duty of care in making corporations responsible to the public for their greenhouse gas emissions. So it really sits in direct contradiction to that. Uh, so I think that that's one really clear case in relation to a duty of care type development. I think also there has been a really interesting development in the, the UK in 2019. So uh, Client Earth, which is a UK-based environmental NGO, issued a pre-action letter to, again, the directors of BP in relation to misleading the public in the way in which it prevented its energy uh, presented its energy business in advertising campaigns and alleged that it was in violation of OECD guidelines and multinational enterprises. Uh, and this really was about the idea that BP had really said that you know it was heavily invested in renewables and Client Earth assessed BP's capital expenditure in renewables as being approximately one percent relative to its fossil fuel energy business. And so uh, there was a complaint made as well in relation to that, and that was substantiated and uh, and would have proceeded if BP had not already withdrawn its advertising campaign in respect of that particular expenditure. So that's a really interesting development as well. That really probably looks at that kind of advertising space where there's been a lot of action as well, I think, overseas in relation to advertising complaints, particularly in the UK, um, in relation to various, I think, greenwashing or green wishing type claims, and certainly been developments in relation to, to advertising in that space as well. And really the third case, I think, that it's really interesting at the moment is, is a really recent investigation which has been kicked off by the US Securities and Exchange Commission, which is really looking at the asset management arm of Deutsche Bank. Uh, so it's really, it's a, a combined investigation by the US SEC, US federal prosecutors and BaFin being the German Financial Supervisory Authority, and really looks at alleged misleading conduct in misleading investors on how Deutsche Bank uses ESG and sustainability criteria across its fund products. And so there's been whistleblower allegations in relation to that, and they were published by the Wall Street Journal earlier in 2021. And there's now this kind of ongoing investigation into ESG investment practices. And we suspect that that's really an area where there will be real developments, where there'll be whistleblower um, claims such as this, and they will kick off investigations into ESG investment practices and potentially lead ultimately, as we have seen in the past as well, to class actions in respect of various disclosures made or the veracity or reasonable grounds on which those disclosures have been made. So there's really three kind of key cases in that space, and they each give an insight into really where things may progress. I think that whistleblower type claim will really be an area where we see investigations by regulators um, and also potentially litigation evolving in that space. Uh, I think also the idea of negligence and a duty of care is another issue as well. And then I think the, the idea of the uh, client earth case and the corporate credentials advertising and the issues in relation 
relation to that. They really feed into an analysis of looking at really where the Santos case is going. And I mean, the Santos case is limited to allegations of misleading disclosure, but uh, it's not a, a great step to see how that could be expanded to be argued against his duties under sections 180 and 181 of the Corporations Act, really, and, uh, and extend those claims to directors and officers personally. So, you know, I think it's quite feasible, really, to consider that claims can be extended to a breach of directors' duties of care and diligence and and really those stepping stones and considering how that will evolve. So I think those are the really the clear the, the clear areas for evolution in this space. And as Adrian said at the start, this isn't a new area of law. There isn't specific laws in this space. It's using general laws which have existed for a long period of time. But the focus here is going to really perhaps develop and create some, some new areas in which there will be litigation and enforcement action moving forward. Thank you so much, Anne, Adrian and Julian, for joining me today on our ESGYS Smarter Lawcast series on greenwashing. Please reach out to us if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast whenever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on our website to be notified of our next episode. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>